What value do you place on public worship? This past week, I saw a video of a famous pastor, well-known author, motivational speaker, speaking to a large virtual audience, and he was he was talking about uh, addressing the the issue that's come up now in in uh, national headlines. The church in California that's been meeting and defying the governor's orders and. Uh, the pastor is in danger of going to prison now because he is defying the governor's orders and the judge's orders and uh, everything that the government can throw at him. He's ignoring it, choosing to obey God rather than men. And this famous uh, speaker was uh, was talking about that and and. His own decision not to meet for the entire year and why his church was completely shut down for uh, the remainder of 2020. And during that speech, he said, I keep hearing people say the Lord commands us to meet. And then he paused and with a dramatic flourish, he said, he does not. This is a part of a trend that I've been noticing uh, during this uh, this virus, this uh, in the the lockdowns that have happened along with it, is a is people taking a new look at worship. I saw an art, an article recently that spoke of uh, internet church. It's here to stay, saying that many people may from this point forward simply watch services online and entirely abandon uh, the public worship and the gathering of God's people. That's not what Jesus did when he was on the earth. He was constantly in the synagogues, constantly going to where the people of God were. Even if they were the people of God in name only or only ethnic Israelites, he was still there with the people of God, teaching, worshiping. When David was in the wilderness, what really broke his heart was being away from the people of God because that meant he was away from the special presence of God. David here in this passage longs to be returned, not just vindicated from the the false accusations that he had been trying to overthrow Saul, but as well that he would be restored. And you see that clearly in this passage, the desire to be restored to the people of God, to the worship of God. And we'll look at this as he he goes through and and, uh, carries out a clever... uh, tactical uh, plan, a, a, a tactically uh, risky, but uh, something that could be very useful for him. So let's look at, at our passage. This is familiar territory by now. David in the wilderness, Saul chasing him. 
the last time we had looked at uh, we looked at Abigail and uh, and David. We looked at the uh, David out in the wilderness there with his um, the uh, the people. Uh, uh, David and his soldiers were out there in the wilderness, and which sort of reminds me, I, I, I it's almost like a picture of the children of Israel when they needed food in the wilderness where there were the 600,000 men with, uh, with their families out in the wilderness and they, God provided for them manna, but they, were, they failed the wilderness, uh, the wilderness tests. God removed some of their, the necessities of life so that they would put their trust in him. And, and as I see it here in the wilderness, David and his men are there, David and his 600 men, not 600,000, but... Um, 600 men out in the wilderness with their families and then lacking food and then Nabal refusing to give up anything, refusing to give them food, what they needed, and David fails the test. David fails his wilderness test because he goes to murder. He goes to take it by force. And rather than trusting in the Lord and obeying God, and the chapter uh, before that, or that uh, was the cave where David had um, he had spared Saul's life in the cave. He could have killed him. Saul was there by himself in the cave, and David and his men. He could have taken his life. His men wanted to take Saul's life, and David said, "No, I will not lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed." Saul was there at that time because of the people of Ziph, the Ziphites. Now back in our chapter, again with the Ziphites. If Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, so Saul is back at home, came to Saul at uh, Gibeah and say, is not, said, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakila, which is on the east of Jeshimon, they give his exact location. Because of this, because of the similarities, David having the ability to take Saul's life, the Ziphites being the ones who um, rat on him, who tattletale on him. A lot of scholars see this, these two incidents as one with uh, just a corrupted oral tradition and uh, simply uh, misremembering. Just the details are different. And I'm, I'm not sure what it is with scholars doing this. They see similarities and they say, okay, the, the first thing is rather than saying, maybe there are similarities, maybe there are so, some coincidences here, or maybe this happened more than once, maybe there's a pattern. Instead they go to, well, it's probably the, a problem with the text. It's probably just that the Bible's not reliable. Um, sometimes I wonder if there's an underlying agenda behind some of the scholarship. But no, this is a different, very different uh, situation. Previous t- a time when uh, Saul was in David's hand, Saul was alone. David was with his army. David had all the men. There was really no risk to David immediately when Saul was there. In this chapter, 
we see David separating himself from his men, going into Saul's army, into the camp of Saul's army, so that David is at a very high risk of death. David is risking his life in this. So let's look at what he's doing and, uh, and the reason for it. So here you have uh, the Ziphites tattletale on, on uh, David again. Saul goes out, doesn't say how many. The last couple times it's been 3,000 soldiers with Saul. And so there's probably uh, not too much to assume that it's 3,000 again. Remember, David has a 600-man army. So David ascertains, he sends out the spies sees exactly where Saul is, and then when they bed down for the night, when they go to camp, he makes certain of exactly where Saul is personally. Then he gets one of his men. He has two picks here. He asks which one of them wants to go with him. And it doesn't really, it doesn't say that he discusses the plan with them. Though, I would have to assume a soldier like David, he's, he's a commander. He's a veteran. He has seen a lot of combat. He is successful. He's been successful in escape and evasion now for a long time. His abilities in escape and evasion are just quite good. He is able to be seen when he wants to be seen and escape when he wants to escape. So he is seasoned and he's not going to do this without purpose and in informing his men. But he picks uh, Abishai here. Abishai says he'll go with him. This is David's cousin. So they make ready and go into the camp. Now just picture this. This is a giant camp. Thousands of soldiers there with one purpose, to kill David. That is their express purpose. Their one mission, their one goal is kill David. They have Saul right in the middle of the camp. That's as it should be. When you have the king in the camp, you put all the soldiers, the, all the privates are out on the, on the edges and your commanders and everybody are in the this, this center section and the king is there and he's well protected and the soldiers are trained that they should give their lives protecting the king. If it comes to their life or the king's life, they give their life. They would have sentries out there keeping watch so that they're not uh, taken by surprise. David is a commander. He has... A 600-man army, yes, they're, they would be outnumbered, but if they don't keep sentries, it's very possible that David could overrun them. But as David has already proven that he has no plan to harm Saul. So when they, they come into the camp, they're sneaking in, they're very quietly going into the camp. David has no thought to kill Saul. That's not what he's there for. Well, you just imagine this picture, just stepping over all of the, the armor and the, the swords and, and pieces of noisy metal that are scattered on the ground, trying to tiptoe through there. This is, this is one of those scenarios that you might see in, in a movie where just stepping on a single twig could set off the entire army after you. They're there to kill him. 
And he is going right down there into the heart of the army. He is going into the lion's den. So he has to have a purpose. He has to have a purpose here. I think Abishai, Abishai, as they come up, they make it all the way to Saul. I think Abishai is going off script. I think Abishai is the one that is, he sees the opportunity here. Saul is laying there. He's on the ground fast asleep. There's the spear, Saul's own spear. That spear that Saul had tried to throw at David multiple times and thought to pin him to the wall is what the Bible says. That spear that he had used to try to kill his own son. It's right there, that murderous spear. Abishai says, just let let me one stroke with the spear. Just let me one time. I'm not going to be a butcher about anything. I'm just one time, stab him, and just let me do it. And here they are in the middle of this army, and they're whispering. And This is so important to, to David that he's willing to risk lecturing Abishai in the middle of the army while everyone is asleep. Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. God forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is really something they've already been over. They were over it in the cave. David had to restrain the men. Abishai just... God has given them into your hand. But notice that David has learned his lesson from the last chapter. God was the one that struck Nabal. David had gone to strike Nabal and get revenge for himself. But it was as Nabal had, uh, after the the feast that he held, uh, let's see. In verse, uh, it's chapter twenty-five, verse thirty-eight. Uh, he's he'd been partying, he'd been drunk, and then uh, Abigail tells Nabal, her foolish husband, that she has gone and pacified David. And then his heart dies within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So David has learned his lesson here. He's seen that it would have been wrong for him to go and strike. But that God in his time has struck his enemy. And so now David says, back in our chapter, verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. I am not going to take this into my hand to do. And so you see the kind of this up and down in David's life. And isn't that the way it is oftentimes in our own Christian experience? David had done so well at the cave. 
David had been so restrained, so saintly. And then with Nabal, he's vindictive, ready to murder. Sometimes uh, our lives are like that. We do so well. We've had such a good Sunday. We've had just a wonderful time singing hymns and and just benefited from the scripture and, and enjoyed the fellowship with fellow believers. And then Monday rolls around. And you fall at just a slight temptation. And you feel like a fraud, like a hypocrite. You're singing on Sunday and, and worshiping and so holy and saintly and then... You fall. You fall to temptation. You don't sometimes not even feel like a Christian. That's part of God's grace, isn't it? That He brings us back even after we fall, even though we are hypocrites. Even though we do fall to temptation, God restrains us and brings us back and lifts us back up and continues to sanctify us, continues to work in us. And that's what you see here with David. He's back on track. He had fallen so far with Nabal, and now he's back on track. He won't strike the Lord's anointed. So what is he here about? Look who he calls out to. He grabs the spear in the the canteen. That are obviously Saul's. They're marked out as Saul's. They're, there's something unique about them. And then David runs to a hilltop, a ways away. So he's got plenty of distance now. And he calls to them. He calls to Abner. Will you not answer, Abner? You see, Saul wasn't the point of this suicide mission. It was Abner. Not only Abner but all of Israel with him. Look what he says to him. Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. You see what he's done? He's gone the last time Saul was the one who was witness to David, David's mercy. Saul was there by himself in the cave. David's men saw they were part of that. They heard David. But the Israelite army hadn't. They weren't there. It was Saul by himself. I think it's probably safe to assume that Saul hadn't gone and and spouted off about this experience to anybody. You can just imagine him not wanting to talk about having gone to relieve himself in a cave and then almost getting killed and having his worst enemy, the one he'd been lying about, letting him go. It's not a glorious thing that happened there. He was caught unprepared, to say the least. 
And now David is going to vindicate himself. It was worth risking death to vindicate himself before all Israel. He is innocent. He has shown mercy. Not only has she shown mercy to the king, and he's showing that to all these men, the entire, now he has, however many soldiers are there, let's say it's 3,000 again. He has 3,000 witnesses to his innocence. He has the king's spear. He has the king's water jug, his canteen, his personal items that were right there beside him. He was obviously there. And now the general of the army is who he's calling out. He is undercutting the authority. He's saying, you all deserve to die. You are guilty. You did not care for your Lord, the king. Even today, the importance of caring for, uh, for dignitaries or presidents. Our, our presidents have nowhere near the power of an ancient king. They, they're nowhere near as important as a person. But even today, we recognize that, that the importance of keeping the leader safe. We have the Secret Service who train and are, are specially trained to keep the president safe. And every time an incident happens, they rework how they train and they rework what they do. So now they no longer, we had uh, the president years ago who was killed because he was in an open car, and now if you see the president's car, they have him in a, in a bulletproof box. They keep him safe, but they're trained, those, the Secret Service agents are trained that if something happens, they put themselves in between the president and danger. If someone starts shooting, they put themselves as big as they can as a shield for the president. And here these men in these ancient times would have received the death penalty or worthy of death for not having guarded the king. And so David puts the guilt on them. He shows them as guilty. You see, if if they lose the king, they've lost the war. It's like chess. He demonstrates through this his innocence. They all know what danger he put himself in. They all know what he was up against. They all know that he was walking into the lion's den to do this. So this destabilizes the whole campaign. It demonstrates to all Israel that David is innocent. And then David gets the heart of what he's about. Now therefore, my Lord the King, hear the words of his servant. This is 19. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should not share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. He says, don't cut me off. You've cast me out from the people of God, from the presence of the Lord. 
He humbles himself. He says, I'm nothing. I'm worthless to you. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not trying to disrupt your reign as king. Just let me come back to the people of God. It's apparent here that Saul has been working a propaganda campaign against David. We saw that uh, previously in, in uh, chapter 22, before the slaughter of the, uh, of the priests. In uh, chapter 22, uh, verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you have all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. You see, he's been doing it. It's like modern politicians, a propaganda campaign. How many times have you seen that? We're in election season. And so what are the, all the, every ad is just how evil the opponent is. And my political opponent, if you elect him, the world's going to fall apart. The stars will fall from the sky. And uh, did you know that he hurts little kittens? Uh, you know, just absolutely ridiculous lies, but it works if you keep telling the lies over and over. You're able to try to convince the people that your opponent, if you elect this person, then the society itself, the fabric of society will come apart. And there will be no hope. That's really what, what Saul is doing. He's been running a propaganda campaign. He's been jealous of David. He has uh, been jealous, it says, since the time that those girls, the maidens of Israel, were singing David's praises. He's been jealous. He has looked at him suspiciously in, in chapter 18. It says he eyed David from that day on. And he continually put a stumbling block there. And he drove David out from among the people of God. For an Israelite, this was akin to death. Think of the Old Testament law where you had the, the lepers. I'll just use one example. There were many things that could get you cast out of the camp. But in the old Israelite, when they're in the wilderness, you had their God. And God had in the, in the center of after, the, uh, after Sinai, where God had instructed the building of the tabernacle, which they're still doing tabernacle worship in David's day. But the tabernacle was the center. That's where God was. It was like a little portable Mount Sinai for them. And that's where God would commune with man. And around that, you had the Levites. And around that, you had the tribes of Israel. And so these, these concentric circles of holiness. And in the middle there, in the center, was God. God in the midst of his people. And they had to be holy. They had to be sanctified people. Because God was in their midst. And then, if someone was unclean, they had to be cast out of the camp. That happened to, uh, to Moses' sister, Miriam, when God was uh, 
disciplined her because she was, uh, she was grumbling against Moses, God gave her leprosy. And in uh, Numbers chapter 12, she was cast out of the camp for a week. For seven days, she was cast out of the camp and then God healed her and, and she was brought in again. But to be outside of the camp is to no longer be a part of the covenant community. No longer a community uh, in the community of believers. That was, that was where God's blessing was. The ironic benediction. The benediction of God upon his people, that was for the people in the covenant community. And so to be cast out is to be outside of that, outside of God's special presence. To be outside where the filth and the uncleanness and the sin is. In the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that great day that it talks about in Leviticus 16... You remember there was the, the ceremony with the goats. There were two goats. One would be sacrificed. And then one would be sent out as the scapegoat. And they would symbolically put their sins on the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat would be sent outside the camp, driven out of the camp into the wilderness. David here is cast out of the camp. David is, the problem here for David is that he is away from the presence of God. To be among the people of God, in the worship of God, is to be in the presence of God. Let's look at a couple of passages. First of all, Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is a psalm of the sons of Korah. So it's not a Davidic psalm. But it carries with it this the, the picture. It's, you'll, you'll recognize it immediately. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my... Uh, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? And there's this desire, this thirst to be in the presence of God. To, and this, this is what, what David uh, wants. He, want, he wants to go and he it says, um, uh, this is Psalm 42 verse 4, that These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping the festival. This is David, thirsty like the deer panting for streams of water. But now turn to a couple pages over to Psalm 63. This one is a Psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now we can get an insight into exactly what is in David's heart. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You see there in verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What David's longing for is to be there in the public worship of God with fellow believers. Do you long for the public worship of God? Can you say it is, it is that important to you? That if everything else were taken away, house and food and everything else, that what would really be the most painful strike against your soul would be being removed from worship. Can you say with David that this is the place where you see most clearly God's power and glory? The worship, worship isn't something that we design because it's convenient or something that we think it's just a good thing to do. This is something that God has given us as a privilege, as a duty. We call it the service of worship. It is, it is work. It is a work of worship. It is a service that we do to God, but it is for our benefit. It's the place where God especially meets with his people. This is a time when many are unable to go to church. Think of people in the nursing homes. They're not allowed to attend public worship. Many people are, because of medical wisdom, unable. So God has taken away from us, from many people, the regular public worship, the fellowship of the saints. And just... Temporarily, just in a little way. And it really is a time when it can reveal hearts. Whether we desire, as David, to go to the congregation, to be among the people of God, worshiping. In the process of doing this, as David longs for this, he also not only vindicates himself and demonstrates his own soul, but he vindicates the Lord as well. Because Saul has not only lied about David, he's lied about God. His Saul on a couple of occasions has said that it was God who was giving David into his hand, that it was he blessed God uh, for, for the, uh, or blessed the people in God's name who gave David up. David reminds the people That God is a loving God. Did you notice that? It is the Lord who stirred uh, you up against me. May he accept an offering. Because God is the loving God. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and mercy. So David knows. That if it is something that he has done against the Lord. If there is a reason that he is pushed out away from the people of God, that God will accept repentance. God will accept an offering. If it is the Lord, He will accept an offering. But if it is man, may they be cursed. 
before the Lord. And why should they be cursed? Because they have taken one of the covenant people of God and pushed him out as though he were a pagan. Jesus, in his time on the earth, was frequently in the synagogues. Many of his confrontations with the Jewish leaders were in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. You see him in the temple frequently, desiring pure worship, cleansing the temple on two occasions, overturning the the money tables and the false worship. His his, His disciples at that time seeing him and saying, Remembering the verse that says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus was zealous for the worship of God. Jesus loves the assembly of believers. He died to create the congregation of the righteous. In Psalm 22, that that messianic psalm, the psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, 22, He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. In case you had any question, if that was about Christ, we can turn to Hebrews chapter two. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to Call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You see, Jesus leads the congregation in praise. In the, in the modern language, he is the worship leader. Jesus, the high priest, of course he is the one who leads us in worship. He is the great high priest. The high priest was the one to be doing the great, the leading the congregation of God's people in worship. There is a cost to this worship. To being a, the ability to enter into God's special presence in worship. Because for the Israelites to be holy, for them to be in that covenant community, there had to be sacrifice for sin, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so there had to be blood sacrifice. There had to be the day of atonement to cleanse them. That was a picture of Christ. A picture of Christ who would be the scapegoat. The one upon whom all the sins were laid. The one who would be cast out of the camp on our behalf. That he would become a curse for us. One more passage out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus paid the price, the the curse of being cast out of the camp, being crucified outside of Jerusalem, outside, symbolically outside the covenant people where the sin is, where the darkness is, where the filth is, because he took the sin, he took the curse for us. And it is because of him doing that, that we can be sanctified, that we can be cleansed in order to come to God as the covenant community of believers, as a people set apart for himself, sanctified, cleansed, made holy for God, so that we can gather together as the people of God, as the body of Christ, to come together and worship. So the gathering of saints, it's not exactly as it was in the Old Testament. There is no casting out of the camp or like David being outside the covenant community physically. But spiritually, we can distance ourselves. We can take it for granted. We can make light of public worship. We can forget the privilege that is given to us of public worship. Jesus Christ is paid. Jesus Christ has become the curse. Jesus Christ has taken our sins upon himself so that he might lead a cleansed and holy people to God in worship. That he might lead, as he says, his brothers. With that in mind, what value do you place on public worship? Let's pray. Lord our God, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our sacrifice. We thank you that you have laid our sins upon him, that he took the curse upon himself. We thank you that we have the privilege of being a part of the church, a part of the saints, that we can enjoy the communion of saints, that we can part be part of that one holy universal church help us to value what you have given us that like David when we are apart from it we would long for it that it would be to us as water in a wilderness oh Lord we ask that you would help us to love you help us to have souls that are ignited in love and worship before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.